This is Carte Blanche, the podcast. One story every day that matters. Delve into the issues that impact you, whether you're in need of a better understanding of the world around you or simply seeking inspiration or unique perspectives. You'll find it all here. Zuko Nonluba, the suspended lawyer who allegedly stole millions in medical negligence payouts from young disabled children. Ikwesi Lokusa Special School, meant to be a place of safety for children with physical disabilities. Instead, it's become a place of suffering, alleged abuse and lack of care. Both these stories were produced by carte blanche producer Taryn Crossman. But telling these stories, witnessing the pain and destruction firsthand, takes its toll. We sit down with Taryn to get the latest on her investigations and also get a glimpse into what it takes both journalistically and emotionally to bring the most vulnerable of society to the forefront and hold those in power to account. Taryn, welcome to Carte Blanche, the podcast. It's so great having you on the show. Thank you. Hello. So, first off, could you tell us how long you've been with the carte blanche team? On, I'm quite bad with this because I always say like three or four years, but I think it's much longer. So, on and off, I think, I mean, I was working on a documentary probably in about 2011. And that's when I did the first story. I did a short version of that documentary for carte blanche. So, the relationship started a really long time ago. And for our listeners who don't necessarily understand what being a producer entails, could you explain to them just in broad strokes what exactly it is that you do? So, for carte blanche, I mean, it depends on what production you're working on, but for carte blanche specifically, the producer role really entails finding the stories, researching them extensively or investigating them, finding the characters, setting up the shoots writing the questions and then directing the shoots out in the field and then bringing that all home and going into post-production, which requires scripting and then sitting in edit for about a week, putting all the the visuals together. Gosh, that's very extensive. That's a a lot of pieces to put together for one story. Yeah. I want to get straight into the reason why we have you here today. And You are known amongst the carte blanche family uh, for telling really hard-hitting human stories that especially highlight injustices faced by some of the most vulnerable within our society. Has this always been your focus as a journalist or how how did you find yourself gravitating towards these really hectic but so important stories? I think it's always been and I think that's kind of how I connected with carte blanche, I guess, and how I started bringing stories to the platform. I always say I'm more of a documentary filmmaker than a journalist, but I have found myself filling more and more of like an investigative journalism hat this year specifically, and and especially for carte blanche. My kind of philosophy with this medium is that we need to use what we do to make the world a better place. And that's what fills my cup as a producer and why I went into documentary specifically, because We have the power to use these stories for change. And I think that's so important with the work that I do. And and often when I'm telling a story, I'm always like, how can I use the medium to change these people's situation for the better? So that's one part of it, like using it for change. But also, um, I've always been drawn to, to human interest stories. So I love telling character stories. 
I hate sounding like it's hard to put it into words because I hate sounding like because we're not giving voice to the voiceless. These people have voices, right? Mm. We just have the agency to tell the stories. And I often feel that all we're doing is taking these hard truths and packaging them in a way that is digestible to our audiences. Amplifying their stories. Yeah, exactly. So the stories are there. The realities are there. People just aren't looking and they're not listening. And what Mm. we have the ability to do is take those stories and make people hear them and make people see what's happening. And that's really important for me. Your most recent stories really did exactly that. It highlighted these stories, it amplified their voices, and it made people very much aware of what's really happening out there. So I want to get into those stories. And the first one is Zuko Nomuba, a dodgy lawyer who allegedly stole millions of rands in payouts intended for the families of children born with with disabilities as a result of medical negligence. Can you tell us firstly how you came across this story? Yeah, it was actually quite random. So I I recently moved to the Eastern Cape actually. And it was kind of where I've born, where I grew up as a kid, and I and I wanted to come home for a bit. I was more looking, just kind of browsing, really. That's kind of how I start, like looking at different newspapers, et cetera, focusing on disabled children in the area. And then I went into the archives of a local publication. And that's where I started seeing the stories on this lawyer. And I was like, that is so weird. That's a really large amount of money because the headlines were talking about 400 million, 600 million that he had been awarded. And I just couldn't understand how I hadn't heard of the story before. And that's how the investigation started. And that was in about February this year. And I really initially thought, okay, I'm going to do a follow-up story and I'm going to profile this guy, kind of like a a profile piece on this dodgy lawyer who had got away with such a large amount of money. And then it just got way bigger than I ever imagined. Did you anticipate the story to take up so much time of your life and no. also for for it to be this extensive? Because I mean, the, the amounts we're talking about are just astronomical. I mean, first of all, I couldn't believe the amounts I was looking at. And and I was mind blown that it wasn't across every newspaper on every channel. Like, why was no one talking about Zuko If we think about like digital vibes, right? I mean, that was a few million and it was just such a big story. So that was a big thing for me. I just couldn't understand why nobody was engaging on this and investigating it. So then I think I started looking at it more and more. And then I think it kind of spiraled when I got a source that brought me files and files and files of the investigation that they had been doing since about 2016 into Zuko. And it took me a month. It took me, I mean, I looked at those files and I was just like, oh my God, this is never going to happen. How am I ever going to turn this into a visual story, right? And so I spent months going through those files. It was like reading a fiction story because the files were largely affidavits from victims and they were court orders and they were medical files. And as I was reading about these women and how they had given birth and the fraud, and it was just like you couldn't script it. So that was really how it started escalating because I could see the magnitude and how many victims there were. And then I think it really spiraled when we went into Umtata and the areas around Umtata and in the former Transkan, we started meeting people on the ground. 
when we say we went from village to village and we crisscrossed the former trans guy, we literally did that. I like often went in two or three days early with the camera crew and we all we had was a surname. So we were looking for a name and a surname. I landed up getting the place where we stay in Umtata all the time. There was a guy that worked there and I said to him, can you just come with me? And he became my local fixer who I've used extensively now since February on all the stories in, in that area. He just like got in the car with us and we just drove. Okay, so we know she's near Robo. So we went to Ngobo and they were like, okay, we know that there was a hardware store near the village. Okay, there's a hardware store. This must be the village. And it was a series literally like this. This is how we found people. And then oh, we're like, then we would just go to that village and hunt for that surname. Um, that's amazing. And for me, and, and I know Govan and I discussed this later with the next story, but it's an energy thing, right? And that's what it became. It was like we had pure intentions. Mm. And when you go into a story with pure intentions, the story comes to you because it wants to be told. It wants to be unearthed. And I've, I've always kind of believed that no matter in all the work that I do. And we truly wanted to help. And that's why it wasn't, it wasn't hard. Like it was crazy that we found these people. I kept thinking we'd no way we're going to find this woman. And then we would just like literally park at the bottom of a hill and climb where the car couldn't go. And we would like find Pamela and it would be like a year Pamela. And then but yeah, that's just kind of how it went from person to person. And that's the kind of thing you don't see in, yeah. in the final product on a Sunday. Yeah. I mean, the literal footwork that goes into these stories. You also mentioned that you were surprised at the fact that this particular story was not extensively covered. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, I have theories. First of all, it's the Eastern Cape. And... I think it had been, there had been reporting in the local papers like the dispatch, but it was largely reporting on court documents. In order to tell the story, you have to go into the former trans guy. You had to go into the villages. You had to spend extensive time finding these victims. You couldn't just get phone numbers from somebody and start calling people from Johannesburg or Cape Town and write an article on it. Yeah. It really needed legwork. And maybe that's why it wasn't reported on extensively. I mean, mm. Zucker was just a lawyer exploiting people that people don't really care about. He was exploiting people that were silenced by where they live geographically, lack of access to them. They had lack of access to the media, lack of access to police. And also some of them are semi-literate. He came in in a suit. They thought he was an amazing. So no one was complaining. Victims weren't coming forward. So it, it was a hard story to tell, mm. I think. So in, in terms of the response that you've received following the most recent story on, on Nunguba, where you focused on the Legal Practice Council specifically, mm -hmm. can you tell us a bit more about the response that you've gotten after that story aired? To backtrack, the story started out in the villain was Zuko, right? And then the villain largely became the LPC. And that was because as far as the investigation we did into the Legal Practice Council, it was very clear that they had been dragging their feet for many years to take action against him. And I think we exposed that in our second story and, and predominantly in our third story where we finally managed to actually sit in the room with them. And the response to that interview from the community, the, the legal community at large, social media, was outcry. I mean, people were horrified that the LPC knew so little compared to what the information that we had on hand and that they had done so little. So I think, in a way, the Legal Practice Council um, 
are also largely to blame. And I think a lot of people online and, and a lot of people in the legal profession were disappointed with their conduct. We've also seen a very strong response from the legal team that you showed in your third story. Yeah, Armand and, and yes. yeah, there's a team of yeah. them now. Yeah. So they responded to it in our very first story already. Armand kind of stepped forward to assist with getting some medical assistance for some of these yeah. children. Can you tell us a little bit more about what they are currently busy with, the legal team? What is their next step in this very big case against Nonuba? At this point, they had submitted a sequestration application against Nunuba and his wife because she was part of the company. She was a director of the company for a period of time. They have submitted both of those, and those are going to court now in October. So that hearing will happen in October. At the same time, they are also applying to the Fidelity Fund to access funds for the 11 plaintiffs that they are dealing with, but more specifically and urgently for Avile. So mm-hmm. according to the legal team, they are hoping to have interim payments for Avile by the end of October. Wow. Because I was just about to ask about Avile because I know we had a short update on him specifically that we were, along with the Carte Blanche Making a Difference Trust, working to get him firstly to a hostel and then also to get him the necessary assistance he needs. So I'm so happy there is a definitive timeline to his case at least, because as we've seen, and Massa also reminded the LPC of this, we don't have time anymore. I've been thinking about it a lot because it's been a long investigation. I think Avila was kind of the driving force for me. When we left the village that first night, and you'll see that in story one, we had to leave, right? So, so I mean, we went down to that village. The context for finding a villa is we, we went into Willowvale probably at about three o'clock in the afternoon, me and the camera guy. And it was the last day we were making our way out of that area and back down to East London. And we drove into Willowvale and it was late already. And we were doing the interview with Millicent. And then Millicent, because uh, I was under the presumption that her son was really far away and we actually weren't going to get to film him. And then she said to me, no, he's actually like right here. And she kept saying, right here in our village. So we said, okay, it was about half past four in the afternoon and it was winter. So we said, well, let's go. We, we at least will then get to see the boy and have a visual picture, which will really help to explain the narrative. So I convinced the camera guy and he was like, we shouldn't be going into the laddie so late at night, but let's go, but let's get out quick, you know. So we went in, man, we went in at about five o'clock, the three of us, Millicent got in the car and she was directing it. It was the worst road we had been on the whole journey and that we had been, that I would say the worst road we had hit this whole kind of story. There was no road. It was like just huge dongas. We weren't in a four by four. We were in like a Hyundai or something. We slid, we climbed. I mean, we were going down into that village and I remember just looking at Clayton and he was like pale. And he said, I don't think we're going to get out of here. Like we were, we had literally surrendered to being, to sleeping either on the side of the road or in the village. Right. But, but we was, we were halfway and he said, should we turn around? And I was like, what's the point? We're halfway. We need to meet to be there. Let's just go. So we went down and we, and we shot. And obviously you see that scene when we arrived, we kind of realized how important it was. And that's that energy thing again, right? Like, the story guides you because we, if we hadn't gone down there that day, night, and met Avile, I don't think he would be where he is today. I don't know if he'd be okay, to be completely frank, you know. 
and the story wouldn't have got to where it was because I don't know if I would have pushed as hard as I have in the investigation if he wasn't such a pivotal role in my mind the whole time. So we got down there and we found him in the condition that he was in, which was really shocking. He was like lying in his own vomit. He had a bottle in his mouth. He was sweating. He was coughing. He was gasping for air. Anyway, long story short, it got really dark and we left that night in the dark. And, and Clayton was Clayton was more shook than I. And he was like, we need to leave, we need to leave, we need to leave. And I was always like, you know, the producer, you're always like, one more shot, I need one more shot. We have to do and but we left that night. We were both really quiet. And I was like, I have to go because I have a young daughter. And I had to get back to East London that night. And I'd been gone the whole week. And I was like, I, we can't not make it to East London. So we, we have to go. And we left. And I remember just driving back thinking, I can't believe I'm leaving this child in this village. Every part of me wanted to just pick him up and put him in the car. And it was just like that fine line that these stories take you to where your human instinct and your professional instinct. And I remember while we were shooting Avila and I think Clayton said to me, I can't film him anymore because I feel like I'm like I'm violating him because he had no agency. He was just lying there in this terrible condition. And I said to Clayton, all you can do now is film. Like the best thing you can do for him is film him. So it was hard. That whole scene was just really hard. And that whole day was really hard. And I think that's why... We kept going, you know. Mm. You know, now there has been progress in his case, and I'm really, really hoping. And I think everyone who has seen these stories and have have heard his story, particularly, are definitely rooting for him and hoping that we yeah. get a really positive resolution to this, and very soon. Well, the thing is, he's doing so well. The Carte Blanche Trust actually funded their transport. And, and facilitated me to actually pick them up and move them to a really amazing care centre in East London. I mean, when I phoned Ellie, the woman that runs the care centre, I was just started crying when she was talking because I was like, you are everything we've been looking for for this little boy. She was just all heart, you know, because I was like, we don't have a lot of money. The lawyers have come forward and they only have can facilitate three months. And, but we're hoping and I had all these kind of variables, which I was sure she was going to say, look, we can't take him on. And she was just like, put him in a car and bring him. And I was like, well, can we bring him today? And she was like, bring him right now. I will make him a bed. Wow. Um, she was amazing. And, and the center is amazing. And it's just, it's filled with loving women. And I've been to see him a few times now. And he's good. He's like really good. He's like, he's, he's still malnourished. And they're slowly bringing him back from a health perspective. But he's okay. You know, he's going to be okay. Oh, and that's all that's thanks to like the people that have come forward. Yeah, like he's okay. He's almost trying to communicate, you know, and, and when I saw that little boy in the village, I didn't know how much was left in him. And now when I see him, when I go to Ellie's place and I visit him, he's he's fully there. Like he's mm. smiling almost, his eyes are alight, you know, he's got yeah, light. He's, he's engaging. You can see yeah, that he's exactly. actually registering what's happening yeah. around him now. Yeah. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. Well well done to you. Cause I mean None of this would have been possible if you didn't stick with this story the way you have. Yeah. I mean, and I don't think you can do that for every story. I don't know. You can't. But he's okay now. And I think the lawyers and the team that have come forward totally pro bono. I mean, these guys are amazing. They send me pictures every day of them together in chambers and in offices fighting for these kids, you know. And for the lawyers to just come forward. I mean, I kept my big line every time I call someone and ask them to please help on the story, like a month coming forward and stuff, is always like, Avila has no more time. Mm -hmm. So when I was saying to Muhammad, look, how long is this going to 
take because Avila has no more time. He said to me, how much does he need? We can get it together. And I said, well, if we can pay three months up front. And I gave him the quote, whatever. And he was like, we'll do it. Find him somewhere to go. We'll give you the money. These stories always remind me that there are still really, really good people out there. Even though we work with really, really dark content, it's lovely to just see these literal lights come forward. No, they really, it's like human beings want to be good. I think, you know, it's like, it's almost like we want to come together and we want to help. You almost want to balance the scales because of this injustice. You almost want to, want to bring back balance into this world. Yeah. So I want to take us quickly into your next story. And this is also a very big one. And you've been following this one for years. Mm. And it's your story or your investigation into a Kwesi Lokusa special school, also in the Eastern Cape. And this school particularly caters for, I think it's 200 or so disabled children. So can you just take us back to the first time you became aware of this story? Yeah, I mean, this was way back 2018. I can't remember how I got on the story, to be honest with you, but I think I've always, I have a passion for the Eastern Cape. Because there's just so much injustice here, especially out in the more remote areas where nobody kind of blinks their eyes. So in 2018, I did an investigation at Equesi Lukusa and the conditions were really horrific. And then we did a follow up story. But as a consequence of that story, there was an organization called Body Stress Release. So once the body stress release team that worked out these parts saw our story, they volunteered to go to Equesi Lakusa and they started working with the children. Since 2018, they have been going there twice a year to work on the children. And it was actually through them, they highlighted a few things they were seeing. You know, they very they work with the school still and they're doing amazing work with the school and they have a really good relationship with the school. They had just raised some concerns with me about the state of the children. In case you missed any of Taryn's horrific investigations, you can find them now on Carte Blanche, the podcast, as well as the Carte Blanche website. Also, keep an eye on our social pages for the latest updates on both these stories. Check out our earlier conversation with Masa Kekana and Govan Whittles as they take us behind the scenes to reflect on the emotional toll these stories have had on them. Thanks for joining yet another episode of Carte Blanche, the podcast. Keep the conversation going online. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Don't forget to rate and review us. Your feedback is always appreciated. And subscribe to our podcast to ensure you don't miss a single episode. 